Hello, I'm Wilson Pruitt, and you are listening to the History of Methodism podcast. You can support us online at patreon.com slash historyofmethodism. Today's episode, The Holy Club in Wesley's Eyes. On August 26th of 1732, the young William Morgan died of a fever. There was some confusion at the time over whether his father, Richard, blamed John and Charles Wesley for William's death. William was an Irish student at Oxford who had started meeting with Charles, Robert Kirkham, and John in November of 1729. In October of 1732, after William's death, John Wesley wrote a long letter to Richard Morgan in order to give a full account of the history of the Holy Club and to assuage any thoughts of his own culpability for William's death. In our next episode, we will look more deeply into the historical record of the Holy Club, but I thought it best to let John speak in his own words about how he saw Oxford Methodism from inside the movement. His thoughts will change later, after his return from Georgia and his Aldersgate experience. These early reflections stamp for us a strong impression of how the early Holy Club felt and why they did what they did. Because of that, this episode will consist of an extended excerpt from John's letter to Richard Morgan that will set the history straight for us all. To Richard Morgan, October 18, 1732. In November 1729, at which time I came to reside at Oxford, your son, my brother, and myself, and one more agreed to spend three or four evenings in a week together. Our design was to read over the classics, which we had before read in private, on common nights, and on Sunday some book in divinity. In the summer following, Mr. Morgan told me he had called at the jail to see a man that was condemned for killing his wife, and that, from the talk he had with one of the debtors, he verily believed that it would do much good if anyone would be at the pains now and then of speaking with them. This he so frequently repeated that on the 24th of August, 1730, my brother and I walked down with him to the castle. We were so well satisfied with our conversation there that we agreed to go thither once or twice a week, which we had not done long before he desired me, October 31st, to go with him to see a poor woman in the town who was sick. In this employment, too, when we came to reflect upon it, we believed that it would be worthwhile to spend an hour or two in a week, provided the minister of the parish in which any such person was were not against it. But that we might not depend wholly on our own judgments, I wrote an account to my father of our whole design, with all begging that he, who had lived seventy years in the world, and seen as much of it as most private men have ever done, would advise us whether we had yet gone too far, and whether we should now stand still or go forward. In pursuance of my father's directions, I immediately went to Mr. Gerard, the Bishop of Oxford's chaplain, who was likewise the person that took care of the prisoners when any were condemned to die. At other times, they were left to their own care. I proposed to him our design of serving them as far as we could 
and my own intention to preach there once a month, if the bishop approved it. He much commended our design, and said he would answer for the bishop's approbation, to whom he would take the first opportunity of mentioning it. It was not long before he informed me he had done so, and that his lordship not only gave his permission, but was greatly pleased with the undertaking, and hoped it would have the desired success. Soon after, a gentleman of Merton College, who was one of our little company, which now consisted of five persons, acquainted us that he had been rallied the day before for being a member of the Holy Club, and that it was become a common topic of mirth at his college, where they had found out several of our customs, to which we were ourselves utter strangers. Upon this I consulted my father again. After my father's encouragement, we still continued to sit together as usual, to confirm one another as well as we could in our resolutions to communicate as often as we had an opportunity, which is here once a week, and to do what service we could to our acquaintance, the prisoners, and two or three poor families in the town. But the outcry daily increasing, that we might show what ground there was for it, we proposed to our friends, or opponents, as we had opportunity, these are the like questions. Whether it does not concern all men of all conditions to imitate him as much as they can, who went about doing good. Whether all Christians are not concerned in that command, while we have time, let us do good to all men. Whether we shall not be more happy hereafter, the more good we do now. Whether we can be happy at all hereafter, unless we have, according to our power, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited those that are sick and in prison, and made all these actions subservient to a higher purpose, even the saving of souls from death. Whether it be not our bounden duty always to remember that he did more for us than we can do for him, who assures us, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Whether upon these considerations we may not try to do good to our acquaintance, particularly, whether we may not try to convince them of the necessity of being Christians, whether of the consequent necessity of being scholars, whether of the necessity of method and industry in order to either learning or virtue, whether we may not try to persuade them to confirm and increase their industry by communicating as often as they can, whether we may not mention to them the authors whom we conceive to have wrote best on these subjects, whether we may not assist them, as we are able, from time to time, to form resolutions upon what they read in those authors, and to execute them with steadiness and perseverance. Whether upon the considerations above mentioned we may not try to do good to those that are we may not try to do good to those that are hungry, naked, or sick in particular, whether, if we know any necessitous family, we may not give them a little food, clothes, or physic as they want. Whether we may not give them, if they can read, a Bible, common prayer book, or whole duty of man. Whether we may not now and then inquire how they have used them, explain what they don't understand, and enforce what they do. Whether we may not enforce upon them more especially the necessity of private prayer and of frequenting the church and sacrament whether we may not contribute what little we are able toward having their children clothed and taught to read, whether we may not take care that they be taught their catechism and short prayers for morning and evening. Lastly, 
whether upon the considerations above mentioned we may not try to do good to those that are in prison, in particular, whether we may not release such well-disposed persons as remain in prison for small sums, whether we may not lend smaller sums to those that are of any trade, that they may procure themselves tools and materials to work with, whether we may not give to them who appear to want it most a little money or clothes or physic, whether we may not supply as many as are serious enough to read them with a Bible and whole duty of man, whether we may not, as we have opportunity, explain and enforce these upon them, especially with respect to public and private prayer in the blessed sacrament. I do not remember that we met with any person who answered any of these questions in the negative, or who even doubted whether it were not lawful to apply to this use that time and money which we should else have spent in other diversions. But several we met with who increased our little stock of money for the prisoners and the poor by subscribing something quarterly to it, so that the more persons we proposed our designs to, the more were we confirmed in the belief of their innocency, and the more determined to pursue them, in spite of the ridicule which increased fast upon us during the winter. About this time there was a meeting, as one who was present at it informed your son, of several of the officers and seniors of the college, wherein it was consulted what would be the speediest way to stop the progress of enthusiasm in it. The result we know not, only it was soon publicly reported that Dr. Terry and the censors were going to blow up the godly club. This was now our common title, though we were sometimes dignified with that of the Enthusiasts or the Reforming Club. Your son was now at Holt. However, we continued to meet at our usual times, though our little affairs went on but heavily without him. But at our return from Lincolnshire in September, we had the pleasure of seeing him again, when, though he could not be so active with us as formerly, yet we were exceeding glad to spend what time we could in talking and reading with him. It was a little before this time my brother and I were at London, when going into the bookseller's shop, Mr. Rivington in St. Paul's Churchyard, after some other conversation, he asked us whether we lived in town, and upon our answering, no, at Oxford, then gentlemen, said he, let me earnestly recommend to your acquaintance the friend I have there, Mr. Clayton of Brazen Nose. Of this, having small leisure for contacting new acquaintances, we took no notice for the present. But in the spring following, April 20th, Mr. Clayton meeting me in the street and giving Mr. Rivington's service, I desired his company to my room and then commenced our acquaintance. At the first opportunity, I acquainted him with our whole design, which he immediately and heartily closed with, and not long after, Mr. Morgan, having then left Oxford, we fixed two evenings in a week to meet on, partly to talk about that subject and partly to read something in practical divinity. The two points whereunto, by the blessing of God and your son's help, we had before attained, we still endeavor to hold fast. I mean the doing what good we can, and, in order thereto, communicating as oft as we have an opportunity. To these, by the advice of Mr. Clayton, we have added a third, the observing the fasts of the church, the general neglect of which we can by no means apprehend to be a lawful excuse for neglecting them. And in the resolution to adhere to these and all things else which we are convinced God requires at our hands, we trust that we shall persevere 
till he calls us to give an account of our stewardship. As for the names of Methodists, supererogation men, and so on, with which some of our neighbors are pleased to compliment us, we do not conceive ourselves under any obligation to regard them, much less to take them for arguments. To the law and to the testimony we appeal, whereby we ought to be judged, if by these it can be proved that we are in an error. We will immediately and gladly retract it. If not, we have not so learned Christ as to renounce any part of his service, though men should say all manner of evil against us, with more judgment and as little truth as hitherto. We do indeed use all the lawful means we know to prevent the good which is in us from being evil spoken of. But if the neglect of known duties be the one condition of securing our reputation, why, fare it well, we know whom we have believed, and what we thus lay out he will pay us again. Your son already stands before the judgment seat of him who judges righteous judgment, at the brightness of whose presence the clouds remove. His eyes are open and he sees clearly, whether it was blind zeal and the thorough mistake of true religion that hurried him on in the error of his way, or whether he acted like a faithful and wise servant, who from a just sense that his time was short, made haste to finish his work before his Lord's coming, and when laid in the balance he might not be found wanting. I have now largely and plainly laid before you the real ground of all the strange outcry you have heard, and am not without hope that by this fairer representation of it than you probably ever received before, both you and the clergyman you formerly mentioned may have a more favorable opinion of a good cause, though under an ill name. Sir, your ever obliged and most obedient servant, John. John Wesley later republished this letter as a way to tell this early story, even after his Aldersgate experience had made him discredit much of his earlier religious fervor. We have heard how John understood the Holy Club, but how can we understand its history? What actually happened with the Oxford Methodists? Next time on the History of Methodism. (laughs) 